0: Okay, so um, last week I talked about the church being a starfish, Um, and it is, I'm going to try to angle that light a little bit for me, Um, and I used the illustration of how in the Great Barrier Reef, there were so many starfish that volunteer divers went down and cut the starfish in half, and they were just trying to free the Barrier Reef. But you can't destroy certain types of starfish by cutting them in half, because they just grow into two starfish. And that's what the church is. So long as one part, one cell, from a starfish's central body segment is in the piece, it regrows, it regenerates into two fish. The church is a starfish, you can't attack, you can't, you can't destroy it by attacking it or cutting it up, which is what the story of Acts has been so far. You have to disrupt its environment. You have to either take it out of its natural water habitat or change the temperature of the water in some extreme way in order for them to be destroyed. Or you have to inject them with some type of toxic reality. Vinegar or bile are the choices of those who are trying to reduce the number of starfish in places. Wild. The church is a starfish. And this week, our passage is about how the church resisted or was protected from A, a standard environmental threat that comes to the church often. And two, an attempt of someone trying to inject it with poison. I'll get to those in the second half of the sermon. But I want to set the stage because I think it's a really important stage to set. First, uh, it's been a while when we've been in Acts and, and Acts is kind of divided into big chunks and we're at another chunk. And so remember that in Acts, in Jerusalem, the apostles are hidden and hiding and huddled. Um, until the Spirit of God comes in power over them at Pentecost. In Acts 1 through 7-ish, the church grows in really beautiful ways in its generosity, its virtue, its loves, its love for one another, its loves for others, its justice, even in its organization structure, and especially on its mission. It grows. And it ends up that because of that growth and its controversy among um, the 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 synagogue leaders and the um, temple leaders. It ends up with with Saul then persecuting the church and eventually Stephen being stoned. Next sections, 8 through 12, the church expands into Judea and Samaria just as God had promised, Jesus had promised. It's just living out that promise through it all. Pretty cool. Philip preaches to an Ethiopian. Saul converts in drastic, dramatic fashion. Peter has a dietary theological revolutionary experience which means everybody gets to be included in the kingdom from all tongues and tribes and nations. And then Saul, after his conversion, Paul, Barnabas, and Peter established the church in Antioch. That's where we are next. That's the next big chunk. Our section over the next few weeks, which will probably be the last section we spend in Acts, unless we pick it up next year sometime, um, is about Paul and Barnabas' first missionary junior, junior journey it goes through chapter 14. They pick up John, John Mark along the way, so I call it the PB&J journey. (laughs) That's how I learned it for my exams. (laughs) It's like, first journey is PB&J journey, then that's how I did it, so anyway. This is hugely important for the expansion of the gospel in their day. Paul and Barnabas pick up John Mark just in the second stop, and, and those are the ones with the household names even among the church of the day, and then really for us too, if you've been hanging around in Christianity for a while. But what often goes unnoticed is the sending church, the church-planting church and what it is. And that's where our passage starts today. So in verse 1, just verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. In this passage, it's the, is when the switch where he only gets called Paul pretty much after that. Modern readers, including me, probably you, usually glide through the names that they're not super familiar with. Um, they're unknown names in unfamiliar places, and she's just like, you know, it's like when you're in the Old Testament, all the ites are there, and you don't know, I don't know who all those ites are. You know, you don't do that. You, you, re, you research them all. <laughs> You are such a studious congregation. But these names, when heard by the first hearers or readers of this, would have been shocked. These are the elders of the church, which becomes the second most important church for church expansion in the history of the early church. None of these people would have been natural friends. James Montgomery Boyce, the uh, famous preacher, up in Philly, he says, in the empire, groups usually had very little to do with one another. Greeks did not like Romans very much. Romans did not like Greeks very much. Jews didn't like either one of them. That's what he says, I'm quoting. The rich despised the poor, and the poor hated the rich. The educated people looked down on those who were uneducated, and so on, and so on, and so on. But not in the church in Antioch. And he's Presbyterian and put an exclamation there. That's impressive. (laughs) The five names tell an enormous amount about this church. Barnabas was a Levite, which means he was a Jewish priest. He was a pastor. He was from Cyprus, so he wasn't from the Jerusalem uh, Jews, which what they call he is a Hellenistic Jew but he was trained to teach the word of God and the traditions of the covenant people of God amid a fully Greco-Roman culture. Then you have Simeon called Niger, universally believed to be a person with much darker skin, most assuming from African heritage. Can't be sure, but there's some decent evidence, and many believe that this Simeon called Niger is actually Simon the guy who the Romans forced Jesus, forced to pick up Jesus's cross. Can't say for sure, not holding to that perfectly, but it's interesting. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a very Latin name, by the way, and Cyrene is a Roman city um, in Libya, and it's like at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So he was probably raised both by his name and location in a very Roman culture. Menaean is a Greek form of a Hebrew name and he was a blue-blood aristocrat Jewish person raised with Herod he had prince-like social status and those are the elders of Antioch Presbyterian Church along with Paul if I ever plant a church it's going to be Antioch Presbyterian Church just to confuse everyone no one will know what it means Y'all, this is a miraculous motley group of elders. It really is. It's almost like I'm serious. Like, I was thinking about this. I was like, it's like the beginning of a bad walk into a bar joke, you know? Right? Into bar, Jesus! Oh my gosh! <laughs> How did I miss that? Oh, I'm going. I'm starting all over. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's serious, though, and it's simply unimaginable in that time. It would look like something either freakish or glorious, depending on the eyes that saw it. None of their friends and family have ever trained them to have these kinds of relationships, this kind of closeness, this kind of trust in one another, and be on mission together for a cause. It just wouldn't happen. This is why sometimes you hear me talk, sometimes you're like, not just sometimes talk about engaging and even celebrating our differences we're not we don't have the kind of racial distinction but we have a lot of cultural distinction certainly a lot of philosophical distinction age distinction but to enter into those places, into those places because something miraculous can happen there that bears witness to the power of God and more so not just with us but our brothers and sisters who call upon the name of Christ It gets uncomfortable. I am sure there were some fusses, and now I've I've been in an elder meeting before. There are fusses sometimes. It's okay. But what if the starting point of God's mission is not just simply agreement on who Jesus is, which it is, but also the miraculous work of God to bring radically different people together to then practice and bear witness to who that Jesus is. What if the power for Christian witness or mission in the world isn't just how we think, but also how we relate to Jesus and to one another? And that, that they know you are Christians by, your, by our love. Hello. That Jesus actually transforms our relationships with one another and the watching world. What if mission and evangelism and cross-cultural work are completely tied to fellowship, connection, bearing which one each other's burdens, the manner of our relationships. What if one of the signs and wonders for our day like it was their day was that people who should not radically love each other, not only radically love each other, but radically love the world in the name of, a certain, of, of the same cause. That's a sign and wonder that accompanies the proclamation of the word. So this relatively young church, with complete diverse leadership, decides to take out 40% of their elders and send them off to go plant churches in this first journey of a 1,400-mile loop. That's how the first missionary journey is set in motion, from the church at Antioch. Now, back to the starfish and the kind of working through the actions of this passage. I said that one way you destroy a starfish is by an environmental th- threat, a change to uh, the temperature or, or, or take it out of the water. It's not, it's not where it's supposed to be or where it's supposed to be gets messed up. Extreme heat or cold, remove it from the water. What I'm going to read to you next is the church resisting being taken out of the water. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, by the way, my, I listen to the passage every day when I drive in, and it said it was salamis. That was pretty funny. They, um, so when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. The natural state of a starfish church, or of the church, is on mission. Together, gathered, together, sent. To abide in the Spirit and listen to what the bidding of the Spirit might be. To courageously swim in the waters. I'm trying to do the starfish thing, and I don't know if starfish actually swim or not. But to be taken in the waters and to live in the waters. And then bear witness to the grace of God, the Father, the love and lordship of Jesus and waiting on the Holy Spirit to to show his power. A starfish church, a church that does not bear witness to its neighbors, both local and global, is is in an unnatural and unhealthy environment. It's been taken out of its habitat, its missional water, and won't survive. It will get sick. It will die. Or you could look at at it this way. There's a a danger in the changing temperatures. The most dangerous temperature for a church is warm. Warm is tempting, like a nice fireside chat with coffee and cocoa. Friends, each other. But warm is simply lukewarm in the church. And it will not survive. Friends, there is so much that that the Lord has brought us through and that we still need here at Redeemer. All of our losses, all of our pain, all of our figuring out how to live together again uh, post-COVID, figuring out who we are becoming, who we even are in the room sometimes, you know? One thing we cannot forget is that the natural habitat for the church is mission. That's the perfect temperature and where we are to be. It's, it's the water we're supposed to swim in and swim in best when we're healthy. This is why I love the two announcements today, regardless of how hilarious they were. It's because we're, it's an outward face. If we individually or together just bask in the lukewarm inactivity of the church, We're going to get sick. Antioch resisted the lukewarm. The next section of our passage today is an attempt of someone trying to do the other thing you can do to destroy a starfish, which is a toxic injection. That's the whole point of the magician of Bar-Jesus, the false Jewish prophet. And again, Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus or son of the saviour. Which is a tragic irony of a name so he had sergius ear who was an important roman official sergius was super interested in the gospel and so summoned paul and barnabas to hear about it well barjesus did not want that to happen so he tries um, to poison the conversation by inserting himself and inserting toxic uh doubt into sergius's ear well paul gets in his face looks intently at him, and he says, you are not the son of the Savior, you're the son of the devil. Stop your lies, stop trying to twist the clear reality, the clear path of God in his word. And then the scripture says that God gave Bar Jesus temporary blindness, and somehow must have whispered into Paul's ear that that's what he wanted him to do. And that passage just ends so amazing to me, it is such a beautiful, you know, I'm an English, an English major, so just the image is so great. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, and when he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amazing. Paul. Was so courageous. He so boldly opposed any injection of Barsheba's, Bar Jesus's, Bar Jesus' or his toxic opposition to the gospel. And the scene ends with, with Sergius having eternally new sight and with the one who opposed God blind. And what a mercy, for a while. You actually experiences things like this. I know I have as I work in the city and have um, uh, co-laboring relationships for the good of the city. Uh, oftentimes it includes fellow pastors or Christians and a lot of times it's co-laborers who may or may not share their faith. And I can't remember anything this toxic of opposition or someone trying to um, inject something false about our Lord Jesus in any of those meetings. There are times every once in a while when I or another Christian have to kind of stop and risk, um, risk our relationships and our mission together that we're doing and say something simple like, or not, have to just clarify the, the beliefs um, and the practices of what a Christian can and cannot do in certain situations. That's nowhere near the intensity of what Paul's going through. Um, and I'm sure you have similar things you have to do as you work for the flourishing of our city. But that's kind of analogous to what's going on here. It's amazing. But what I don't want you to leave with without any, I don't want you to have, lack any clarity about, is my last point. Because neither Antioch Prez, which I love, its elders, who I love, Paul, my love, Barnabas, none of those people are the hero of this passage. They acted heroically, heroically, but no way in the hero. And Luke, again, this amazing literary creation of the book of Acts, he lets it be known very clearly. See, there is a difference between a starfish and a church. <laughs> God made the starfish to regrow itself. It gets to be its own hero. Now, God's the hero of making the starfish that can regrow itself, but it gets to regrow itself. God made the church utterly reliant upon the Holy Spirit to grow, heal, or protect it. We cannot regrow our limbs, we cannot multiply ourselves. People in general, not just the church, were not bade by God to be the heroes of their own stories. Again, I wish the book of Acts wasn't nicknamed Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit. It would be a better nickname. How did this motley church start in verse 1? By the power of the Holy Spirit transforming people, empowering the Word of God to be so uh, in them and enlivening their souls to risk relationships they won't, um they would not naturally have and then set their face towards the world what does it? verse two say and they were worshiping the lord and fasting and the holy spirit said go send paul and barnabas then you get to verse three it doesn't mention the holy spirit but it does say this then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off who are they they're praying in the spirit but it's just this utter reliance upon God, literally fasting to, um, to have an experiential and enacting of their own reliance upon the God in their bodies. All to gain the energy of the Spirit to move. Verse 4 and 5. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cyprus. Just in case you're wondering, who's the main actor? Quick... Um, intro into Bar-Jesus, and then verse 6-8, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, addresses uh, Bar-Jesus. Is there any doubt that Luke is what he's trying to convey here? The Spirit of the living God is the hero of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is mentioned, and I didn't do the count I wanted to do with taking out other things that might just be spirit human, but there's 537, and that's, means that means that's it's the main character. We were created to be reliant creatures filled with the deep necessi- necess- necessity of God to be the prime mover in our lives, and that means even amid our failures and our finiteness, I mean our vices and our v- virtues and victories, he's still the prime mover. And then he envelops us into this great adventure of letting the world know who this Lord is. That we might thrive and that others might thrive. Friends, we cannot resist the reliance that has been built into us. I know it's scary. I get scared all the time. But it's where the power is. And if you find yourself avoiding it, trying to escape from it, scared to learn it, lean into it, that's what these stories are for, to be encouraged, that it's right and good, to encourage us that, that our most abundant life is in reliance upon our triune God, and specifically in the Holy Spirit. I'll end with a quick tangential story and then, um, yeah. So there's this, there's this grave, And um, on the slab, it says, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. It was written, it was about a 100 year old grave. An acorn must have fallen into it. Um, So 100 years later, it's now an oak tree, and that grave is split open. And the pastor tells a story about um, if an acorn, which has plant power in it can split a slab what can the acorn of god's spirit in our lives do in a person's life through the spirit tim keller actually writes about this pastor telling the story and he says the spirit empowers us to believe the resurrection of jesus then the power of the holy spirit comes into our lives and it is the power of the resurrection. Think of the immovable slabs in your life, he says. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, your self-doubts. I add your your sins, regrets, and failures. The Spirit promises one day to split them with his power. So, y'all, because of Jesus' amazing grace and through his resurrection power, we experience that power through the Spirit the Spirit is this wind, right, that sweeps us up into the dance of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the music at that dance is melody of grace and love, harmonies of holiness and peace, and then there's this baseline, this wonderful baseline, which is the mission of God that actually is the place where we live and thrive most all so that we may be caught up in this mission that God has to make a people for himself and rid the, rid the world of this curse as far as it is found. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are kind, merciful. Spirit, we are so thankful for your work in our lives. Would you help us lean into you and not run from you when you're confusing or seemingly silent, or we just don't know, or we're just too scared and scramble for all the things we feel like we need to have. And would you give us hope that you will do that, and it will be clear, and you'll set us out on mission in, in the ordinary ways and then the extraordinary ways that you did in the early church, in the mundane and the miraculous, all of it. Lord, would you do that for us, help us trust you more? It's really hard, but please give us the grace to trust you more. We pray in your name. Amen.